Hello and welcome to this Melbourne Business School podcast. I'm Jan Marshall and with me today is James Yorston. James is a senior consultant who facilitates in a number of our executive education programs here at the school, specialising in leadership, change and team culture. Today we're talking about resistance and change, why people fear it and resist it and why some people embrace it so quickly. We'll be learning about how we can bring people through change in its many forms, whether it's a new product, building a new office, or acquiring a new business. And to start us off, James. We've heard that uh, organisations are changing more rapidly and more often in this world. What can you tell us about leading change? Yeah, well, Jan, I absolutely see that day to day in the work that we do. Uh, whether it's through technology changes, whether it's through new entrants or whether it's through sort of globalising, uh, business are being impacted at many levels. Uh, and I think we do hear again and again this sort of notion of um, there's all this change that's impacting our business uh, and maybe it will stop at some point and we can go back to sort of more business as usual. Well, the thing that I think we're all beginning to realise is it's not going to change, that it's going to be a constant and that is the new normal. Uh, so I think what I wanted to first sort of uh, explore with you was this notion of change and uh, how we often see resistance associated with that change. And what are you seeing in resistance? What does that term mean and what happens in organisations when people are leading change and they meet resistance? Yeah, well, that's a really important point to start, I think, because the first words that often get sort of associated with uh, change is resistance. And many people sort of say, oh, look, yep, there's change in our business and resistance. And they're sort of almost like uh, bed fellows. They just sort of go together. Well, the first thing I wanted to do was just challenge the notion around change and resistance. And maybe just ask you a question, Jan. Do you ever take a Tats Lotto ticket? On a very rare occasion, <laughs> I think I, I might get one as a gift, but yes. Okay. Yeah. So imagine you know, your numbers come up and that ticket wins you the first division and uh, you suddenly come into sort of a couple of million dollars of wealth. Would that see some changes possibly in your lifestyle? I'm imagining it would. <laughs> Give me a few new opportunities. Yeah, you know, it might be a different place where we take holidays. It might be, we might even think of uh, moving in a, finding a beach house in some place. Now, so given that there may be some changes in your life, uh, Jen, would you be then screaming at me saying, James, no way, I cannot take this change. It's unacceptable. No, it's just going to be all this resistance. Probably not. I'd probably be quite happy with that offer, I think. <laughs> so really sort of, I think to just dig into that a little further is that there's change there, but what I'm hearing is there's very little resistance. Um, so that's my first point that I want to make is that when there is change, there is not always resistance. But when there is loss associated with the change, there is resistance. So in the Tatsoto example, the loss is really small in there. You know, it's a lot about gain rather than loss. So I think that's the first thing for us to really be thinking about. When there's change and we are seeing resistance, it's because there is loss somewhere in the system, whether that's individually or collectively for a team. And that's where I want to just explore a little bit further, this concept of loss, what that could be. So um, can you unpack what that loss looks like for people and how it might be felt or how it, it comes out during the change process? Absolutely, because it can manifest in different ways for different people. Um, so the, the next point that I really want to make that is important is that those who have the most to lose will have the most resistance. Um, and if you think about yourself, reflect back to a time when maybe 
you had quite a bit of um, a change happening and there was loss associated with it. If that loss is great, there comes more resistance with it. It's sort of a natural sort of progression in a way. So that's sort of the first thing that we need to be considering is how is the loss being felt by people? And the loss could be from loss of status. Like I might have had a role that now after the restructure, it's moved down in terms of the seniority in the business. Um, there might be relationships when we've merged offices or companies have merged. I've lost relationships now with people who I'd worked with over many years. So the loss can become in many forms in status, autonomy, relationships, um, and they'll be felt differently by different people. I imagine too even certainty is, is a loss. We're moving from a certain world to a, a less certain world. Absolutely. And I think that's becoming more and more what employees and organisations are facing. We really don't know with any certainty what the next sort of five years will bring, but even sometimes now what's the next quarter going to be with all these changes that are impacting on businesses. So yeah, with, with the point of, of loss and resistance, the thing that comes then with the loss is, so again, coming back to that point, those that have the most to lose will probably have the greatest resistance. And those that have the most to lose will probably also have the most to learn. Let me give you an example of that. When we're working with organisations who are being disrupted by technology, and at the moment we've got one who is sort of um, in the energy sector. Um, now imagine there's a big workforce that goes out each day to maintain and look after the lines that distribute electricity to our homes. Now, that's a workforce that has traditionally probably been sort of blue collar that have worked in a way for probably a number of years, quite stable and predictable. Now with technology and new devices and new apps being used to sort of manage and schedule in their work, that these employees are now being asked to sort of use technology in a very different way than what they've previously had to. So they've got quite a lot to learn and typically in an organisation, those that have got the most to learn can feel quite daunted by that degree of learning. And what we find in many organisations now is it's probably those in the workforce that have been in the workforce longer. And when we think, you know, we've got now generations of employees who have been born into the digital and internet age. So when we employ new graduates, they're very technology savvy. So they can't imagine not using a device or a tablet or um, in their workplace. But if you go back to your baby boomers, who didn't grow up in that world, their learning sort of curve um, and their learning step is much, much, much greater than someone who was recently sort of hired as a graduate. So one of the things that we then find when we are looking at leading change is we will have different resistance levels for the change that we might be looking to implement. And in your teams that you lead, be aware that different people will probably be at a different point in terms of willing to adopt the change versus willing to resist the change. So if we come back to thinking who's got the most to lose, and that probably means who's got a lot to learn, well, then we have to start thinking a little bit differently how we manage and lead the change for the people in our, in our workforces. James, when we're leading change, what do we typically do in light of the fact that we do have these people who may be resistant? What's, what's the way people approach change? What we often do in working with those resistant to changes, we often try and ignore them or sort of leave them out. And I'll share why that is the case. Because often those of us who are leading the change 
um, are quite enthusiastic and are maybe a little bit further along the journey around well, what's happened to be seeing as wanting to implement this change. Those that are resisting it, again, for the reasons that they've got a lot to lose or a lot to learn, we probably often experience them as quite difficult. And we think, oh, do I have the time to be spending that with people who are negative and seem to suck the energy out of me? And there's all reasons why we can't do it. Uh, and often as leaders of change, we tend to say, look, we'll go and spend the time with those who seem to be far more positive, that are on board with it. And that's where a lot of our attention goes. Now, the sort of fallacy in that is that those that are on board with it are probably on board sooner because they've got a lot less to lose. So the allies in the change, they're, they're sort of allies there really early on and you don't need to do a lot with them because guess what? They've got more to gain and very little to lose. But where we often in our change work is we spend more time with them because they make us feel better about leading the change. And the ones that are resisting, we go, oh, you know, they're just always the difficult ones and we'll just kind of ignore them. But the thing is, they're the ones that really need the support and they're the ones that really need to sort of have time with them to understand and build awareness of where the different stakeholders are at. Presumably, too, that if you're listening out for, the, let's say, their sense of loss, what they could be losing... One is that you may hear things that are important not to lose. And two, it's an opportunity, I imagine, to start to uh, explore with them, you know, what else, what, what might be gained or, or what's not changing that's important to frame. It's not like everything's going to be lost. For sure. And I think where I'll take the conversation is in sharing a model, a simple model that helps people uh, work through change in, in its all, all its forms. Um, it's a model that we call the four doors of change. Jason Clark was uh, sort of the, you might say the creator of this model a few years ago. And the model has four doors. And I'm going to briefly describe the four doors. And then we'll use a little example, quite a simple example. And I guess I'm sharing this model to help those you know, that are listening now to be thinking, this could be useful for me in helping lead my team or my organization through a change. So if I describe the first door of the four, the first door is what are the things that we used to be able to do and still can? The second door is what are the things we couldn't do before and still can't do? The third door is what are the things that we used to be able to do but can't do anymore? And the fourth door is the things we couldn't do before but we can now. now to make this a little more sort of uh, interesting, let's take a really simple example. And this, is, this was one that happened in our house uh, last year. It was moving house and we've got a couple of kids that are school age. And it meant in moving house, the kids were going to have to move school. Let's just really sort of briefly work through these four doors. Now, again, the first door that I said was, what are the things that we used to be able to do and still can? Now, if I think about my son who uh, is in year five. What do you think might be something, Jan, that putting yourself in that shoes of a 12-year-old that they used to be able to do and still can, even if they've changed school? Well, I imagine there are things like um, just the process of getting up and going to school every day, um, going, you know, to um, experience there'll be people there, there'll be teachers there. I mean, some of the things that might be obvious, perhaps, but maybe to someone as young as that, they need to be restated and uh, a sense of what what will still be there uh, is created. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, something sort of tangible was in looking at that first door, uh, my son will still be able to play with his best friend, Sam, 
on the weekend. He'll still be able to be part of the cricket team with his, uh, with his uh, friends and my daughter, she'll still be able to, able to do uh, dance classes with her friends on a Monday and a Wednesday night. That's the first door. There's things that we used to be able to do and still can. Now the second door that we get people to think about is the door that was things we couldn't do before and we still can't. Simple example for that for the kids uh, was look, they couldn't wag school before. <laughs> <laughs> And in moving to a new school, they still can't. Um, they couldn't before be rude and sort of nasty to their teachers. And guess what? They still can't. So those first two doors are what we would call keeping things the same. And that's important because sometimes when we see change in organisations, those of us sort of starting to hear about that change think that everything is going to change and my world's going to be turned upside down. So those first two doors are worth considering because in any change, there will be some things that you will still do. So let's now move on to the third door, which is the door that we call sort of the letting go. And that's the one where you used to be able to do things, but you can't do them anymore. Now, again, for my, if I take the school uh, move example, my son can't now sit with Sam in class every day. He can't, and my daughter can't sit with Sienna, her friend, uh, in class every day. So. There are some things in this third door where there is loss. And that's what we really have to be able to build awareness of and understand from different people's perspective, because that's the door where we have to let go of things that we once had and we won't have going forward. Just to stop and think about that door for a moment, you, you use the words build awareness of that loss. That sounds to me like a significant step because we may be reacting to a change and feeling lost, but we may not have even stopped to know quite what those losses are. Yep. And that's absolutely uh, to the point that once we start to stop and think about, and I actually encourage when I do this with groups to stop and write down what are those things. As people are writing them. And then what we usually do with this simple framework is get you to share that with someone is sometimes in just sharing it and talking about it, you begin to see, well, actually it's not insurmountable. And it might've been you know, more of a creation in my mind than actual reality. So just by thinking through those things and trying to identify what are those losses has some real power. And the other part that's really important in this door is having a conversation with the team, um, or it could be even your customers or your clients, depending upon what the change is and hearing from their perspective what that loss is. Because sometimes as leaders of change, we haven't actually taken the time to appreciate what might be happening for the different stakeholders. And in them feeling like they've had the opportunity to share that with you and be heard, sometimes that can make a big difference to us sitting in that resistance camp or moving towards that, I can start to think about embracing this because going back to yourself, Think about when you've had a change that you've really resisted. And often there's been an element in no one's even asked me. No one's even thought about what I've got to give up here. And that builds a sense of anger and frustration in us that just the mere fact of being able to talk it through with someone often gives me a sense of, okay, the leader of this change at least has some empathy for what I'm going through. And that can help me start to say, okay, I will now listen and that then is where we come to the fourth door. And the fourth door is what are the things we couldn't do before, but we can now. And this is the one that we call the new stuff. This is where you get to do the things that you couldn't do. But again, 
we call this one the fourth door because we've gone through three other doors that help us understand what the reality is before we ask someone to accept and embrace what the new is. And that's really important because in any change, to have any creation, there actually has to be destruction. Um, and you think about anything, if there's a new house being built in your street, that creation of something new will have probably led to the destruction of the old house. And the creation of a new merged business has probably meant the destruction of an existing business. So whenever we've got creation, we've got destruction and we have to be able to hold both of those. So moving to that fourth door now, things that we couldn't do before but can now. For my son, back to the school example, the house move meant we were really close to the new school and it was an easy walk uh, or bike ride to school. The new school had a, had a gaming and coding stream of class that wasn't available at the old school. So, you know, my son and daughter were actually far more willing to start to consider that fourth door when they'd sort of been helped to understand what was going on in those other doors. Now, people sort of say, James, you didn't talk through this with you know uh, primary school kids and call it the four doors. Well, I didn't, but we went through that sort of process of dialogue and, and, and exploration. And I guess that is the model that I say to people, bring something simple like that and begin the conversations with your team. Sounds like it's uh, a very effective model. Have you an example where you've worked with it, the client as well. It's a lovely example with the kids. But um, have you seen organisations work successfully with this model and have a, a different outcome? Uh, many, many times we've done this with organisations. And the, and the beaut part of this model or framework is you can do it at many levels. And what do I mean by that? Well, you can do this with large groups of employees where it might be a whole organisational-wide change. Uh, it may also be a much smaller change that just involves a department. So you can scale it up and down to whatever the change initiative is. And the other thing where it works with groups is I get people to do this individually first. So think about the four doors and write down what's in those four doors for yourself. Then to pair up and have a discussion about sharing where each of you are coming from. And depending on sometimes whether you're at a senior management level or at a frontline staff level, the doors look different. So in having those conversations, you start to build an awareness of where the change is with different parts of the business. And I also then work with people to say, if a change is very early on or in, in its infancy, this is a wonderful way to start to sort of put some of those elephants in the room. In the room. I also then use it maybe midway through the change. And it's really interesting for people to be able to come back to where they were, it might be three months back, and they can see that some of the things have shifted. And when they fill out those four doors, it looks a bit different. So in doing this little model, you're helping people move through that change process. And sometimes I'll do it at the end of a change for the same reasons to get people to think, well, where was I at the beginning? Where were I in the middle? And what does it look like at the end? And that can sometimes be a really wonderful way to sort of share some lessons and to be thinking, well, if we found it like this for this change, maybe there's some things we can take for the next change piece that's coming. Because back to that first point I said at the start, the changes are going to keep coming and this won't be the last one. James, I just want to take a very quick break and take the opportunity to ask you a little bit more about dealing with extreme resistance. To those chosen to come here, and to the organisations they represent. 
Congratulations and welcome. You're making a clear announcement that you want to do more, achieve more and be more. While you're with us, you'll be among the best, learning from the best. You'll leave changed and then be called upon to lead change. So to you we say, welcome to Melbourne Business School. Welcome to the world class. James, um, talking about people who are resistant, what do we do with those who have gone through a consultative period and we've given them the opportunity to talk about their loss and hear about the positive things of this change? What do we do with those who still sit there feeling unable to go with that change and still don't want to? And that's a really valid point, that there is often a small portion that will be really resistant despite the sort of efforts that we've just described. I think the first point that I'd make is in understanding what people may be giving up and really understanding that. I don't just mean going through the motions, but looking at that framework and really getting to the nub of what people are expected to give up. That then helps us much better determine what support that person might need. Coming back to that point, we get more resistance if there's more to lose and then more to learn. So really thinking about, well, what training, what investment do I need to give this person? If it is a technological shift, what have I got to do to invest in them being more technologically competent? So that's really important that often, if we really take the time, we can find ways and support mechanisms to help move people's competence up. And that can help in them saying, I can see now how I can be a part of the future and I won't be left behind. So that's the first point. And look, the second point is, this is probably about being really honest and transparent with change. There is a minority in um, change initiatives where people just will not move. They just have dug their heels in and for whatever reason, they are just not going to get on board. I think that's where you've got to be really honest and you've got to be open and frank with people to say, We've gone through a process where we've genuinely listened to understand your position. We've communicated and shared with you why we're doing the change and what the importance of the business implementing on that change. And being really frank to say with them, this is where we're going to be going. At the moment you're over here and the rest of the business is going to be here, that we're going to be investing in the business going forward in this direction. And if that's something that you're not prepared to move towards. Well, you have to have that really honest conversation and maybe what is seeing them resist may have some broader parts to it and maybe they're really just at a point where the role or the organisation isn't fitting for them anymore. And sometimes in the work that we do, they can be the, the conversations that people will come back after they've potentially moved on from the business said, that was the best thing that ever happened for me. It wasn't something, and there was a whole lot of other things that were leading to my resistance, and you helped crystallize that and helped me move on. And sometimes that's the best thing we can do for people. So I imagine, too, that the value of spending time with people to work through these doors and, and all the, that goes with that um, would really probably be a time saver in the long run because you're not then getting caught up in people who may be resisting the change or other factors that you hadn't considered that are, are just stopping that change from taking place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people sometimes say, oh, but you know, James, I really don't have the time to be work, working through and having these conversations. You know, we're on a tight time frame and we must implement this change. What I find again and again in organisations when we fail to do this is you get this sort of um, 
silent acceptance in that people nod in meetings and they're very sort of on the surface, there's sort of nods and gentle sort of acceptance. But underneath, there's this real current of uh, dissentment and there's this real current of resistance that a model like the four doors brings that out early so you know what you're working with. And once you have an awareness of what's going on, you have then an ability to start to shift and make some change to that. If you're getting people that are just all nodding and silently saying, yes, but when they go back into their own works teams, telling you all the reasons in the world why it's rubbish, uh, change takes a lot longer. And you know we've seen the statistics on how many change initiatives fail because it is, it's these pockets of resistance that can eventually grind the change down and just see it not implemented. James, thank you for sharing your insights today on leading change. Thanks, Jan. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to hear more on change, be sure to listen to some of our other podcasts in our change series or visit our website at mbs.edu.